The Dangerous Twisted Mystery Podcast. Less cozy, more ugly. Warping listeners' minds since 2022. Music by Dangerous. Narrated by Twisted. Chapter 14. Snow Angel. Darcy heard the manager rattling the keys outside the restroom door. It was time for the weekly cleaning. She'd been letting the hot water run at a trickle to warm up the frigid stall of the truck stop restroom during the night. It added a few degrees of temperature to the air, but she could still see her breath when she exhaled. She looked up at the window above the tank, judging if there was no time. She knew what he'd ask for in return for a night's lodging. There was something about a man who sat all day in sweaty, thick wool pants that categorized any act that led him to remove the garments as cruel and unusual punishment. She had a headache from fortified wine, and her bloodshot 19-year-old eyes watched through the crack of the stall waiting for the outer door to open. A car honked outside the building. It was cold enough for full service to be popular at the pumps. Darcy privately thanked the driver of the car and vowed some day to repay the man or woman who had saved her from sweaty pants. Footsteps receded outside the door, and she snuck out the back window. She hit the frozen ground and felt a wave of freedom, followed by the sudden need to throw up. There was no one there to hold back her hair as chunks of the past insisted upon being pulled up into the present. They froze to the ground like abstract art. It was a portrait, she thought, representing her life. She didn't notice the beauty in the sickness that lay at her feet, and like most of the people in her life, it pretended not to recognize her. Wagner felt sick in the pit of her stomach after putting down the phone for the hundredth time in the hour. She had called about half of the erectile dysfunction specialist in the country since her first morning cup of coffee. Her message sounded like the start of a crude joke. I'm looking for an easy rider with a problem in his pipes. The Bureau had put out a medical alert, but she didn't want to wait for the data to trickle in. If only one of them could put a name to Blue, the investigation could be over in a matter of hours. Medical assistants were scouring records, promising to get back to her if anybody fit the profile. The problem with Blue was that he was not the kind of person that made an impression that registered. He was a quiet leader who announced himself through behind-the-scenes actions, not words. In the real world, there would be no temper, no nerves, nothing that would call attention. He was a calm lake with a mirrored surface, and a monster lurking just below. All the people who had broken that surface were dead. What kind of chance did they have with someone recognizing this guy? I knew I shouldn't have told you. Legacy's familiar voice came from over her shoulder. Legacy wasn't in favor of her wasting her time calling around. There will be no trail to follow, Agent Wagner. Blue wouldn't leave any record behind. She thought about Legacy's statements, looking for ways to prove him wrong. It was easier to project criticism onto him. He was solid, sitting only a few feet away. He had a purposeful stare, the kind that she remembered seeing in photographs of billboards of men going to work in the 50s. It wasn't optimistic, pessimistic, or cynical. His dark eyes brooded in thought. What the hell did he know? A thought came to Wagner suddenly. She turned back to the computer and added two lines of text to the FBI alert. She hit send and waited for the replies. It wouldn't save Laura from today, but it might the next day or even the day after. Wagner peered back over at Legacy. 
He was staring right at her, like he knew something was different. She admired the way he collected all the energy into the room, into his eyes, and said nothing. She broke the silence. I might have something. But it won't help us soon? he asked. She nodded. That's good. We have thousands of agents thinking about today. You're catching on. Smug isn't sexy, a dismissive nod. I'm glad you identified my biggest daily concern. Just because you work on a geological timeline, it isn't about how fast you're moving. It's if you're moving in the right direction, the direction of your goal. He pushed some papers aside and leaned in with a confidential manner that made Wagner suddenly aware of her posture. I'd rather be going slowly towards the answer than rapidly zigzagging away. Wagner put a hand on her neck, searching for a necklace she hadn't worn since high school. The gesture was personal and left her exposed. Wagner could have won the Nobel Prize in Physics for the way she turned insecurity into defiance. Too smug with the lean. I'm not going to tell you. Coffee break, she said in a clipped tone. I don't know what happened, Blue confided in an overly empathetic cuff. He was painting black latex over Tracy's body. He left open all the areas that might be useful in the coming hours. Where are we? she begged. Short, he lied. It barely changed since yesterday. They must be getting ready for the new girl. This is what happened last time. He dipped his brush in a clear substance. This is an actual mixture of sweat that I've collected off the ground. It should make your hair shine. Uh, what happened last time? It won't happen to a pretty little muffet like you anyway. You know what men want out there. A performer like you should have no problem giving it to them. Have you ever wondered what a tuffet was? And why Miss Muffet ever bothered taking a rest in a place she must have noticed to be right near a spider's web? Blue dipped a tube into a bottle marked lubricant and then hooked it up to an air compressor. I can... Ah! Click! Tracy caught her breath and could barely talk as Blue shot the mixture into her body. Is that... Click! All done. Blue left her face unpainted. Hair slicked back tight against her temples. He wanted to see every tremble of every expression that she made. He wanted there to be no escape from her new identity, from what she'd become, probably because there was no escape from what he himself was. Some illnesses are best left undiagnosed. His watch alarm beeped. She was ready. Don't be gentle, Blue whispered into her ear. A large graphics flat-screen monitor was brought in especially for the broadcast. Bailey leaned against the back wall like he was waiting in a doctor's office. His usual casual manner was absent, indicating that maybe he had a heart after all. Wagner sat up front. She had done something to prepare for this event that she almost never did. She put in her contacts. She was very self-conscious of the fact that she was losing her eyesight early in life. But it was more than vanity that kept her from hiding the deficiency. It was the fact that sight was considered a critical factor in her work. She had a genetic condition, underproduction of saline solutions, which she was told that corrective laser surgery could actually accelerate. The thin corrective membrane that covered her pupils caused her to blink and irritated her eye with every movement. However uncomfortable, it was necessary for the next hour. People always commented on her eyes. They were perfect. Obviously not thinking of function, she thought, as the lower lids batted down like sandpaper. Legacy was nowhere to be seen. Wagner found him in the office. We had a date. I'll watch the playback. Playback is where we have the whole picture. 
The original broadcast didn't contain sound. Two purposes were suggested. To keep the participants from saying something incriminating, and secondly, the limiting principles of the upload bandwidth of the internet broadcast. The playback version is over an hour away. Wagner was dumbfounded. How could he calmly work while a crime was in progress? A chill went through her. Legacy saw the transformation and chose to explain himself. I get too involved. You? Involved? That's a good one. I put myself into the crime scene. I'm not just watching. I'm there. It's a side effect of getting lost in the thoughts of others. Wagner smirked sardonically. You're there? Are you you or are you super you? Do you have a cape on? I don't know how to explain it to you. I am at the crime scene. I walk around in it. You don't find what you're saying ridiculous. Wagner found mordant humor in his words. Putting myself into the situation, live and in progress, will make me less effective, he said, dismissing her. Wagner didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Just when she was beginning to believe in a version of the myth that followed Legacy's name around like a dictionary definition, reality crept in again. The man was delusional. By the time Wagner got back to the Situation Room, the initiation was already in progress. The silent interlaced video images flickered. The women were kissing, a deeply disturbing portrait of bondage, spiritual and physical. Perhaps she hadn't wanted to see the beginning anyway. Chapter 15. The Dowdry. The Dowdry was a tin hat rock shack with cobwebs burrowed into olive green masonry. It sat on a rapidly failing compressed wood foundation and barely kept it from joining the rubble that slid down the mountain every spring. Lodgepole pines hemmed it in at the corners and kept the winter snow from drifting. Not far from the freeway, this backwards bar was on an old rambling bark highway a road built by the logging companies in the 40s that had never found its way onto any of the maps. It wasn't the charm of the place or the owner that kept it in business all these years. It was a marketing ploy that old Burley G's second wife had come up with during the good times. They'd printed over a million matchbooks using the wooden sticks from the plentiful tree lumber, and with the help of a few free drinks and miscellaneous favors, the bikers that stopped in made the bar known countrywide. Everyone who drank there was required to take three boxes of complimentary matchbooks and distribute them to bars from coast to coast. It was one of the first and most effective viral marketing campaigns that ever ended in a divorce. When Burley, a huge Nordic-looking man, found out that the news of the bar spread partially because of the renowned hospitality of his wife, he sent her packing with a thousand matchbooks and half of his savings. It might be expected that the bar hadn't been the same since she'd left, but, to the contrary, it had barely changed at all. Driftwood mounted on the walls like trophy, harkened back to the days when forestry taxidermy was a rollicking good joke. Beer taps, made from bark, shed chips into the glasses like thick, dendrological dandruff on creamy white beer heads. A different young woman kept the bar, taller than his second wife, and older than the fourth, she was the sixth, showing twice the skin of the fifth, but a little more modest in the mind than the others. She went by the name Snowflake. Snowflake was sitting on the bar, dangling her legs over a squeaky rotating seat. A smashed-up jukebox had been spinning the same record for over a year, and nobody seemed to mind. One of the men from the group in the corner called out for another round. 
They were the regulars, the only regulars. They played pool, talked heatedly about which one of them had the best shot at getting a reality TV show, and got drunk at 11 a.m. They hardly ever talked to Burley, and that was strange only because everybody else talked to him. He was the county's central distribution hub for stoic concern. Burley once listened to a transient former engineer talk about industrial process adhesives and their uses for 23 hours solid. The new regulars stayed away from him, kept out of earshot. They represented an odd combination of coming to a public place to get away from everyone. One night they'd come in, sweat stains pouring down their shirts, and after three pitches of beer, the short one told Snowflake that they'd raced there from an old Adventist summer camp about five miles up the road, and they weren't leaving until they couldn't find their way home. Two hours later, someone came looking for the group, a greasy man with sunken eyes. It was someone she'd never seen before, and come to think of it, she'd never seen since. He showed up in one of those short school buses. He carted them off after he broke the jukebox with a rusty old three-sided chuck axe he'd pried off the wall. The incident had led to Burley's non-controversial edict that furthermore, no weapons used as decor. Snowflake began her sachet over to the men's table, brushing her hips on the chairs on either side of her in a figure-eight motion. The show wasn't for the regulars, or for her husband. It was for herself and the part of her that yearned for a playful, graceful pace. Beep! A small Blackberry device on the belt of one of the regulars went off. The alarm cascaded quickly through the group, and suddenly a chorus of alarms sprang from identical devices that each of them carried. Then one of the devices chimed in with a polyphonic tune, the song Maniac from the movie Flashdance. They all looked at him. It's us. The song... The beat of the tune led to him gracelessly reenacting the scene where the dancer runs in place with a wide smile on his face. The floor creaked. A lean man with a Welsh accent and a shit-eating grin chimed in. Where in the hell did you get that? The dance ended. The internet. It took me seven seconds to download. He nodded, smiling like a know-it-all prick that had absolutely no clue. What do you fucking mean, it's us? A sinister voice challenged. The young one rolled up the sleeve of his flannel shirt and flashed a tattoo. It was a woman riding a motorcycle, but not an ordinary motorcycle. The drawing depicted a morphing of man, sex, and machine. The handlebars were a man's arms grabbing the spiked bracelets of a woman biker who rode the bike. The headlight was a man's head, and his legs made up the seat, wrapping around the woman's back. Below the picture was scrawled, Rolling F. Maniacs. The sinister one said nothing, but crushed out his cigarette on the younger man's arm. That puts a period on it, stupid bitch. The regulars were out the door. Pained complaints and crude innuendo could be heard following them to their bikes. Then the rumble of the engines faded into the distance. That's what always happened. They'd get a page, and they'd run off like the president was waiting on them. Snowflake, the person who actually did wait on them, didn't feel like she was being treated at all like the first lady when she counted up her tip. Her eyes wandered to the window and the street in front of the bar. She looked out, pretended to be thinking about something far away, but her real thoughts were close by. They hovered around a new man in her life, someone who didn't remind her of anyone she'd met working at this place. She wished he would come in through the front door again. She sighed, looking at the painted Hello Kitty pattern on her nails. "'What's the matter?' 
Burley hollered across the bar, spit-shining the glasses. Snowflake held up a single-dollar bill. She let her fingers work their magic, and the paper weaved like a snake around her digits so that a single middle finger was visible to Burley, punctuating her displeasure with the tip. Cancel the trip to San Martin. Burley snorted in agreement. You look out that window half the day. Nothing changed out that window except the weather in twenty years. He smiled as she walked back to the bar, brushing her hips along the smooth aluminum sides of the tables, and then disappeared into the back room. She couldn't meet his eyes. He knew. She knew he knew. The only thing Burley could spot quicker than a customer without cash was a wife planning to leave him. Blue. Blue walked across the compound. Gravel crunched under his work boots and skittered away from the tread. An old injury gave him an uneven gait, lurching to the right and consequently slightly dragging his left foot. He'd been told that if the knife had been an inch longer, he might have lost the leg at the knee. His chronic pain flared up from time to time. Today was worse than usual. The kick to the knee that Laura so kindly contributed put more drag into his gait, but it didn't slow down his pace as he walked from the trailers to what used to be the camp showers and gymnasium. Cleanliness was important to Protestants, he thought. It showed in the fact that the men and women's showers occupied more space than the administration office, which he passed, listening to the clank-clank of metal clips against a hollow flagpole. It had once been the proud standard for the American flag and the Camp Exeter pennant, but now it was only a rope, three clips, and a rusty cap. Blade peeled off his vinyl mask, and sweat poured off him like greasy dew. He spat on his hands, which he used to pluck the tinted contacts out of his eyes, and then he looked up. Hazel eyes sunk in their sockets. Cheeks pitted and oily, and hair sticking to the sides of his face made up the man nicknamed Blade. He continued its process, checking his watch and muttering, Roll call. He swung the main door open and walked in. Tile ran up partition walls to shoulder height. He did a head count looking around the room and scowled as simultaneously his eyes lit up with delight. Who's missing? Blade's men responded like a heartbeat under duress. They sped up, not fully knowing what they were reacting to. This was the same lazy group of thugs from the bar, although they hardly resembled their former selves. Now they displayed a regimented organization. It was like a parade. No, that was too grand. It was like a dog show put on for Blade. No one wanted to upset the man who'd just entered the room. When Blade got angry, there was always punishment. Indiscriminate and crippling were his favorite two kinds. His cruelty was legend, well before he'd put wheels under his abduction scheme. In the past, he'd organized this group of ruffians into one of the most highly sought, highly paid group of enforcers on the road. He'd hand-chosen them from other biker groups, and saying no was not an option. Blade had a very persuasive way of keeping his men in line, and he had rules about everything. He wouldn't let them gain or lose weight. He had a strict hair length code, and it was different for each man. It was like he'd built the likeness of each of his crew into an ideal that he would not allow to change. The men complied, just as they had complied with everything he said, because they'd seen what Blade had done. He took on contracts that nobody else would touch. He would follow intimidation further than anyone else. Blade had changed the minds of top businessmen, politicians, and even organized crime lords. 
not by putting a knife to their throat, but by putting a knife to the pulse of everything that man or woman prized most in the world. He hounded every interest of his target to the ends of the earth until they saw things his way. Accidents happened to everyone they'd ever met until Blade got his way. Blade once amputated the leg of a college roommate of a man he was hounding with a blowtorch. The victim was screaming the entire time that he couldn't even remember his roommate's name. Too bad for him. All Blade did was leave a business card near the charred stub and suggested that he give his old friend a call and let him know how he was doing. After something like that, he'd evaporate into the roadway system, only to reappear in a month, a year, or even five years later and perpetrate a very dedicated, very personal reign of terror. His crew had achieved quite a reputation. Now they sat in neatly divided stations, nozzles and air compressors fixed for the colored liquid mixture that would be sprayed onto their bodies. These were their costumes. To the right of the door was Red. His name was Sean, a tall, lanky guy who served as the group's mechanic. Sean was Welsh, soft-spoken, his eyes vacant. He was much more comfortable interacting with the moving parts of a bike than with any person. He was answering the questions of the men in the stall next to him, Vorist, Violet. It keeps sticking between second and third. I don't see why it isn't a priority, Vorist said, smearing himself with a mixture of powder and oil before applying the color. Sean saw their leader standing in the doorway and then replied, Blade sets the priorities. Well, this should be one, he said kicking a tub of powder in front of him and sending a cloud into the air, which he snorted deep like cocaine. Vorist had a dark islander complexion and a white-hot temper. He was always looking for a fix and a fight. His laugh rattled like an engine, mechanical and joyless, and it cut out abruptly like he was daring someone to find him less than hilarious. His jokes usually involved pain. Green was in the next stall, and he laughed at everything. He went by the nickname Feely. I want you guys to start calling me the Green Goblin. He liked to give himself new nicknames. All right, Feely, Sean said in a low monotone. He was the mascot of the group, willing to do anything on a dare. Feely was their long-haul rider, often making it from east to west coast, balls rattling in a single straddle of the bike. It was particularly important to have a long-haul rider now because of Blade's rules involving commerce. He made them buy everything by mail order, and nothing came to the same mailbox twice. So if they needed to buy parts, they had to set up a mailbox in Tampa or Tuscaloosa, ordered the part, and sent Feely on the road. Feely shrugged his shoulders and passed the talc under the plastic divider to Stones. Here you go, Stones. That's enough for your body, but uh, it won't cover your dick. If I were you, I'd be tired of myself in a week. I'm 31, and I'm proud to say, after watching Dr. Phil, I've learned to make myself better through criticism from others. Somebody take away his TV. Stone smiled, very satisfied with almost everything he said or did. Feely shot back, Don't talk about TV to Mac. He stopped short, just realizing that Mac wasn't there. He looked around the group, then up to Blade. Uh, go easy on him, he's had a bad day. Blade spotted an empty stall. His skin turned from parchment yellow to flushed red in seconds. Stones took the conversation off track before he could expel his anger at anyone in the room. Our little friend should know not to step in front of bullets. He's so 
fucking paper thin, it's going to go right through him and hit the other guy anyway. He grabbed Feely's shoulder and shook it. Feely wobbled like a sheet of tin. Stones let out a deep, rumbling laugh. After a moment of breathless indecision, Blaine joined. Relief spread through the room, and everyone returned to the task of suiting up. Stones' area was stained yellow. After a quick dust, he began applying the vinyl coating to his skin. Painting the median line below his belly, he encountered what would be, to an outsider, a truly majestic sight. Stones had the attribute that nobody in the group could argue with, a porn-sized penis. It mesmerized the group like a religious object. Many had knelt in front of it. That could explain the confusion. The experience he offered was the kind based on stimulus alone. At the base of the argument about Stones was that he never felt alone, even when there was nobody in the room. It explained the way he got away with the behavior that others in the room could not, and also the way he thought about himself. His dick gave him a numerical advantage of adjusted net worth. He had the one object of influence that could not be bought or sold, and he knew it. Mac rushed in, ranting, The fucking TV! I can't get my E! How am I supposed to get it together without my E? You're late, Blade projected from the doorway. Mac stumbled and nearly fell over the brown-stained bench in his area. A fucking TV! It's not my fault! It's the satellite! Blade approached him in even, measured steps. He let words slip out the same. You know my rules. Nobody's late. No excuses. Come on, it's not me. It... Mac held up his hands in front of him in a defensive posture, which only angered Blade more. Do you think I'd just punch you? I'd never do that. His right eye twitched, pupil lazily dragging itself from the corner and focusing on Mac with fresh anger. I'm not saying you would. It's a mistake. It would be over too quickly. I like it when someone is waiting for the punishment to come. Do you want it now? or later. Blade saw the recognition in his eyes. Later was always worse. He'd pick a time when everyone was drinking and happy. There was an instance when he'd waited a year for punishment, then called for it just as the guy was going to meet up with his family that he'd been away from for six months. He took a gusher over the right eye to the reunion. If a person didn't stand for the punishment, they ended up dead. He had two pinpoint daggers, assassins' weapons that were silent on the way in, bloody on the way out. Blade always got his due when it came to payback. Now, Blade put his hands together. He had a secret that made his punches legendary among the people who were on the receiving end. He did what he always did to get his adrenaline running. With a quick twist, he popped the knuckle on his right hand out of joint. It was extremely painful. Then his arm lashed out almost as if by itself, striking Mac in the throat. Blade heard his knuckle pop back into joint as it pushed its way into the meaty flesh of Mac's throat. The second surge of pain brought a smile to his face. Mac staggered backwards, falling over the bench and landing on the hard tile. Blade received and dealt out pain in one elegant motion. It was the product of the sickness that had infected his pleasure centers. Mac, meanwhile, was rolling on the floor, gasping saliva and blood into his lungs. I like TV, Blade said with brutal levity, a husky laugh in his throat. Anyone like it more than me? The men were silent. Mac struggled, unable to talk. Then raise your hand. Blade pointed directly at Mac. 
Max slowly raised his hand, fingers curled still from the shock of the hit. Blade burst out laughing. You're in charge of getting it fixed. It has to be fixed by next week. The joke spread through the room, but just as the mood was passing, Blade added, Paint em up, men. Don't want to be late for the initiation. Chapter 16 Tasteful Kiss me, kiss me like a reckless schoolgirl with a crush on my lips. Sugar lips, baby. Tracy's improvisation skills had not blossomed in captivity. Wagner had turned away from the picture when Tracy touched Laura. That was the second time she'd watched the video, the first time with audio. She now could hear the desperation added into the act. Tracy clearly was willing to do or say anything to keep her captors happy. Laura was immobilized. The pattern of knots that held her spread across a frame were expertly executed. Her mouth was wide open, a bit inserted in the back teeth that kept it in a forced oval look of shock. Nothing could change the series of perversions about to happen. I'll start by rubbing it up against your chin. Then if you don't eat, I'll relax these muscles. She touched the area where her pubic hair met her stomach. Wagner's heart was racing. Futility was pumping through her veins, ice in her bloodstream, carving out a throbbing pain in her head. Her own discomfort was trivial in that moment that she knew that it was happening. It was real, the kind of real that is as personal as a facial expression or fingerprint. Odd, slightly connected thoughts went through her mind, like the fact that there were thousands of nuts who collectively didn't believe the moon landing. She was willing to bet that the people who fought reality, the most stubborn doubters, were out there watching this and believing everything. No one wanted to be skeptical of this moment, and Wagner knew why. Sex was the ultimate argument, and watching the live image, she stood and made footsteps quickly to the bathroom. She vomited. It was warm and full of acid. Her body dug deep into her digestive tract, but it couldn't pull the experience from her mind. The geography was just all wrong. A splitting headache accompanied by final heaves, and then, looking up in the mirror, a strand of hair had fallen, curled around her face, and for all the preoccupying beauty that stared back at her in the mirror, the only thought that went through her head was, I used to see her on the way to class. She brushed her hair back and set about to fix the rest of the damage. Wagner left the restroom and found Legacy waiting outside, directly between her and the conference room. He said nothing, but for some reason he stood, waiting. Wagner stood statuesque for a moment, looking up and down her partner. She took his silence as smugness. Real nice talking to you. Wagner brushed past him, hesitating at the door to the conference room. Naturally, she had no will to go back. Legacy's presence standing over her shoulder made it almost impossible to back down. The audio from inside was bleeding into the hall. A woman's voice yelled through breathless bouts of fake ecstasy, frantically signaling to her captors, Everybody get in here and finish us off! The controller's voice came over the PA. A vacant sound ordered all the colors to report to set. Wagner felt another wave of nausea. From behind her, Legacy raised his voice in what seemed like an effort to cover the sounds of the production. You don't have to go back in there. The people in that room are going about this all wrong. Wagner looked back at Legacy and saw a quick flash of something resembling concern. But coming from Legacy, a closer translation would be a pause in judgment. 
It made her feel selfish. Legacy quickly adopted his regular tone, adding, Everything those investigators have done up until now has been useless. Going back in there with them just includes you in their failure. It's pathetic to keep failing the same way. Come back to the office. You always know just what to say, she quipped. It's a real gift, he said, falling in step beside her. They didn't speak on the way back to the office, but at the door, Legacy leaned in and opened it for Wagner. She brushed under his arm and turned, catching Legacy face to face. This was the time when most men would fall under Wagner's spell. You know you overcompensate. You're emotional and fragile. You sit around debating your own shortcomings, which, granted, are many. Legacy was not like most men. Something you should know about me, I work better when I'm pissed off. So we should be very productive. Wagner was already sinking into her chair and turning away from Legacy's area of the office. Fine for you. But is there anything that makes you easier to work with? Legacy stared at her like he was waiting for a reply. One of the first times he'd wanted to hear her voice. Wagner's silence was delightful and operatic.